Uh, I hope everyone enjoyed the lunch. We're going to um, turn in just a moment to our luncheon speaker. Uh, before we do, uh, I first want to uh, thank and recognize uh, our conference staff here at Cato, who this event would not have been possible without. Uh, particularly, uh, Courtney Messner has done so much of the work. Uh, but I also want to recognize our development staff as well. I think many of you know uh, Greta and Jenna, who, again, without this event would not have been possible. Uh, but I do want to thank everybody uh, in our conference and development staff who really made this happen. Um, now, <laughs> So now on to uh, some observations about the SEC. Uh, let me start with one of the unfortunate tendencies in my experience of many financial regulators is an unwillingness, some would say even a disinterest, in determining whether the rules they promulgate actually have benefits that exceed the costs. I, I know that's kind of shocking. Uh, there have been few agencies more guilty of such than the Securities and Exchange Commission, having lost a number of court cases due to their inability to meet even the absurdly low standards of the Administrative Procedures Law. Uh, to some degree, this sorry state of affairs is the result of the dominance of lawyers at the SEC, and I say that no disrespect to any of the lawyers in the room, I know there are many. Uh, so it was my great excitement uh, in hope that when Mike Pipovar was announced his appointment to the SEC, I greeted that with much, much excitement because Mike's an economist. And I figured it couldn't be any worse than the lawyers over there. Uh, Mike has actually a PhD in finance from Penn State. He has an MBA from Georgetown University. So I was thinking to myself that imagine an SEC commissioner who can actually read a financial statement. It's probably got to be the first in a long time. Uh, it actually has some insights into how markets work. Uh, we're not going to quiz Mike later with any uh, accounting questions. But uh, as um, Mike, I was also excited because Mike is an alumni of the Senate Banking Committee staff, as am I. Uh, so it was great to have another uh, alumni there. Um, is Mike also served previously on the Hill as a staff economist at the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, I don't say this about many people, but few in Washington can really uh, match profession, uh, Commissioner Pipovar's ability to combine policy, law, and economics. Uh, I think that goes some way in explaining why he's been such an active and loud voice at the SEC, uh, and often, and maybe only too often, he's been the, lo the lone voice for some reason there on the commission. Uh, and I have no doubt at all that his presence on the commission has greatly improved the quality of the decision making uh, and brought a clarity of thinking there that to me has been lacking at the SEC for a long time. Uh, so with great pleasure, let me welcome Commissioner Mike Pipovar to the podium. Thank you, Mark, for that, for that wonderful uh, introduction. Uh, I'm from the government. I'm here to help. <laughs> All right, good. Uh, thank God. I was afraid to get, I usually start with that joke, and I thought at Cato, I could really get hurt if I said that. So uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, although, Mark, I actually don't read financial statements. They're just too long. They're written by, and they're written by lawyers. So. Uh, so they're, they're not. Um, so, what's that? Um, so thank you, Mark. Uh, for years, uh, Cato Institute scholars like Mark uh, have served as important voices in the public policy debate about individual liberty, limited government, and the free markets. Mark, your voice is profoundly needed in the continuing discussion about regulation of financial markets. And thank you for organizing this great conference. I enjoyed listening to the refreshing remarks this morning by my good friend, CFTC Commissioner Christian Carlo, 
who's doing an outstanding job of ensuring, ensuring that his agency acts in a thoughtful way, as well as those by Josh Rosner, co-author of Reckless Endangerment, the must-read book that exposes how misguided government housing policy and crony capitalism combined to cost taxpayers trillions of dollars in bailouts and lost economic growth. Uh, I was also one of the people clapping this morning when Kevin Dowd said that, uh, bank, that risk models used by bank regulators are worse than useless. Um, and you'll see in my speech today, there'll be a lot of common issues and themes as to what uh, Thea Knight had mentioned uh, in her speech uh, just before lunch. Uh, I'm happy to be with you in New York City. Whenever I have the opportunity to travel for meetings or to conferences such as this, I have a fundamentally different conversations than when I'm inside the Beltway in Washington, D.C. In Washington, conversations frequently are scripted. Participants who may be accompanied by trade association representatives and lawyers use their talking points and have been coached to stay on message. Those discussions, while, uh, while they are undoubtedly meaningful, as we uh, at the SEC engage in rulemaking and, and otherwise set policy, but outside of Washington, D.C., people generally want to talk about something else. They want to share their dreams and their concerns about running their businesses. They want to show how their products, services, and innovations contribute to the economy, create jobs, and improve standards of living. And more importantly, they want to demonstrate how inside the Beltway regulations are often focused on concerns that do not represent the biggest risks of harm to investors, customers, and businesses outside the Beltway. They want to explain how regulations distract attention from the real risks and challenges of operating businesses in globally competitive markets. Compliance with securities laws and regulations is only one component of running a company. A business, of course, must come also comply with laws on consumer protection, taxes, safety, employment, zoning, the environment, just to name a few. If you have multiple locations, if you have multiple locations for your business, such as New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, you must deal with regulators in each jurisdiction. Soon, it may seem like you exist not to produce a good or service, but just to stay in compliance with the law. With that in mind, now would be a good time for me to provide my own compliance disclaimer that my remarks today reflect my personal views and not necessarily those of the commission or my fellow commissioners. In fact, often my views do not reflect the views <laughs> of, of many of my fellow commissioners. Over 30 years ago, economist Bruce Yandel famously coined the term bootleggers and Baptists. And I noticed that uh, his book was available outside the Empire Room earlier this morning to describe a public choice theory of economics which observes that for regulation to endure, groups that otherwise have opposite points of view choose a regulatory structure that results in private benefits for both, but perhaps is suboptimal for society. In Yandel's illustration, Baptists support laws that shut down all bars and liquor stores on Sundays. Bootleggers are also in favor of such laws, but for entirely different reasons. If Sunday closing laws are in place, both parties get their preferred outcome, and the rules are easy to administer. But if the problem is consumption of alcohol, Sunday closing laws merely shift the production and distribution of alcohol from one group, bars and liquor stores, to bootleggers, while giving a false impression that the public interest is being served. No pun intended. Actually, it was intended. 
Yandel described this regulatory approach as making complete sense when viewed from the regulator's perspective. As regulators, Yandel reasoned, are focused most, uh, mostly on minimizing its costs rather than overall costs of regulation. One example is the regulator's cost of enforcement. A regulator may be inclined to favor rules that minimize the number of circumstances in which a regulatory mistake can be made. For instance, unless a lawmaker confuses the day of the week, it is clear under a Sunday closing law whether a bar or liquor store is required to be closed. It is less costly for a regulator to adopt simple across-the-board rules that are easy to monitor and enforce than alternatives that take into account economic efficiency and distributional effects or how costs and benefits are distributed among different groups. One area where we see this result is private securities offerings. The theme of this conference, of course, is capital unbound, or should I say hashtag capital unbound. Uh, in contrast, the theme of the Securities Act of 1933 could be characterized as capital restricted. And as Thea mentioned uh, in her speech earlier today, the Securities Act was not written with small businesses in mind. The Securities Act prohibits the use of an instrument of interstate commerce to offer or sell a security unless pursuant to a registration statement declared effective by the government. It's, it is a blanket prohibition on raising capital unless you have the government's authorization or you can find an exemption. The language of the prohibition, though, does not simply prohibit capital-raising transactions or sales of securities. It also prohibits offers, for which the law defines as every attempt or offer of or solicitation of an offer of to buy a security or interest in a security for value. And the Commission broadly construes the term offer to encompass any public statements that might, quote, condition the market, unquote, to or arouse interest in an issuer. Fortunately, the statute and regulations are not so draconian as to require government permission on each and every private securities offering. There are a number of exceptions. Still, the burden remains with the issuer to prove its eligibility to use an exemption. One of the most noteworthy exemptions is contained in what we call Regulation D, which is a safe harbor for certain private offerings. Commission data shows that Regulation D offerings are the most popular type of exempt offerings when compared to other exemptions. Now, I suspect that despite recent SEC rulemakings intended to improve other exemptions, such as Regulation A, issuers are likely to continue to favor Regulation D for the foreseeable future. Regulation D is based on a provision of the Securities Act, which states that the obligations to register with the government will not apply to any, quote, transactions by an issuer not involving any public offering, unquote. The Supreme Court addressed the definition of a public offering in 1953. The court offered the following interpretation. The exemption should turn on whether the particular class of persons affected needs the protection of the securities laws and should be only utilized by persons who can fend for themselves. Now, consistent with Bruce Yandel's theory, the desire for regulatory simplicity resulted in the need to draw bright lines. In 1982, the Commission did so when it adopted Regulation D. It essentially divided the world of private offering investors into two arbitrary categories of individuals. Those persons accorded the privileged status of being a so-called accredited investor and those who were not. 
In short, if you made $200,000 or more in annual income or had $1 million or more in net worth, then you were in the privileged class and could choose to invest in the full panoply of investments, whether public or private. If not, the government decided that, for your own protection, you were restricted access to these private investments. One of the few provisions of the Dodd-Frank Act that I can strongly support authorized the commission to undertake a study of the definition of accredited investor as it applies to natural persons to determine whether it should be adjusted or modified. I welcome this review and I'm pleased that staff in our Division of Corporation Finance is currently working on that study. The $200,000 income test has not been updated since 1982, even though due to the effects of inflation, $200,000 in $2015 represents a different amount of purchasing power than in 1982 dollars. The net worth test was revised as part of Dodd-Frank to, to disallow equity in one's residence from being counted, but otherwise remains unchanged. In my view, there's an obvious need to revisit these thresholds. As the Commission's Investor Advisory Committee has pointed out, simply adjusting the test for inflation may not be the right answer. We do not know, for instance, if the levels set in 1982 were right to begin with. Were they too high or too low? Further, a single national threshold might be under-inclusive and over-inclusive at the same time. Earning $200,000 a year in rural Iowa, for example, is quite different than making $200,000 here in New York City. Moreover, the income and net worth tests can create different results depending on how an investor has structured their own personal balance sheet. As one early commenter pointed out, someone who rents and has $1,001 in declared net worth is accredited while someone who's prudently paid off the value of a home, which could be of net worth of $975,000 and has $750,000 of additional assets for a total net worth of $1.7 million is not accredited. Another commenter observed that the current test also unnecessarily injects age into a determination of investor sophistication. Older investors who've had a long time to accumulate wealth do not necessarily possess better investment acumen than younger investors who've had not had the time to build up their substantial net worth. Now, picking up on a theme of Thea's speech this morning, I want to move beyond the artificial distinction between so-called accredited and non-accredited investors and challenge the notion that non-accredited investors are, quote, being protected, unquote, when the government prohibits them from investing in high-risk securities. And here, I will appeal to two well-known concepts from the field of financial economics. The first is the risk return trade-off. Because most investors are risk averse, riskier securities must offer investors higher returns. This means prohibiting non-accredited investors from investing in high-risk securities is the same thing as prohibiting them from investing in high-return securities. The second economic concept is modern portfolio theory. By holding a diversified portfolio of assets, investors reap the benefits of diversification. That is, the risk of the portfolio as a whole is lower than the risk of any individual asset. Now, I don't have time to, today to give a full lecture on the mathematics and statistics of portfolio diversification, so I'll just assure you that something called the correlation of returns is key. When adding higher risk, high return securities to an existing portfolio, as long as the returns from the new securities are not perfectly positively correlated with or move exactly in the same direction as the existing portfolio, investors can reap returns with little or no change in overall portfolio risk. 
In fact, if the correlations are low enough, the overall portfolio risk could actually decrease. These two concepts show how even a well-intentioned investor protection policy can ultimately harm the very investors the policy is intended to protect. Moreover, restricting the number of accredited investors in the privileged class can have additional or what economists call second-order effects. The accredited investors enjoy even higher returns because the non-accredited investors are prohibited from buying and therefore bidding up the price of the high-risk, high-return securities. Remarkably, if you think about it, by allowing only high-income and high-net-worth individuals to reap the risk and return benefits from investing in certain, in certain securities, the government is actually exacerbating wealth inequality. Turning to a different issue, hundreds of, issue, hundreds of SEC employees, including me, work hard every day to advance the Commission's investor protection mandate. I'm proud to say that we do a very good job at policing that beat. At the same time, I believe that investors should have a healthy dose of skepticism about the government's ability to protect them in connection with their financial investments. The SEC sometimes enlists help, and that raises significant concerns. In both settled and litigated cases, the SEC and courts frequently require issuers and regulated entities to, re to retain independent consultants or monitors to promote compliance with regulatory obligations and agreed upon undertakings. A consultant will review the firm's procedures and report to both the firm and the commission staff any weaknesses in controls or operations, as well as recommendations for modifications and improvements. These undertakings usually require the firm to respond in writing, re representing either that the firm will implement the recommendations or offering alternative solutions to address the weaknesses the consultant has identified. The undertakings also typically include provisions regarding the cost of the consultant, deadlines for submitting reports, requirements for the consultant's independence, and other prescriptive details of the engagement. To the extent there is an undertaking and enforcement action for an independent consultant, commission staff plays a limited role in the process of engaging the third party. The staff evaluates the specific person and in rare cases selects or recommends to a court someone to serve as the independent consultant. And the final choice might, must not be unacceptable to the staff. Now I'm sure that there are well-intentioned historical reasons for the commission's practice of, on independent consultants, but we need to reassess whether this is the correct approach. We need to question whether the appropriate level of involvement and responsibility and therefore accountability of the Commission when it comes to overseeing remedial compliance efforts by regulated entities. As Bruce Leandl noted, one of the risks that a regulatory agency faces is making a mistake. Therefore, by limiting our involvement to the procedural aspects, only determining whether a consultant is independent but not, and not otherwise unacceptable, and avoid making the hard decisions about the substance the Commission is walking away from its statutory obligations. In the course of carrying out our duties, our agency, like any other person, may make a mistake. But it is far better course of action to tackle the challenge head-on rather than to shirk and shield ourselves from the responsibility and accountability by outsourcing critical functions to third parties. Next, I'd like to discuss the issue of waivers, which has recently generated a lot of press for the SEC. The Commission has the authority to grant waivers to certain persons who would otherwise be ineligible to utilize various provisions of the securities laws. There are four main types of waivers. First, status as a well-known seasoned issuer or WICSI. Second, a pro uh, prohibition from acting as an investment advisor of any registered investment company. 
Third, disqualification from using something called Rule 506 under Regulation D. And fourth, the ability to rely on the statutory safe harbor for forward-looking statements. Today I'll fo I will focus on just the fourth type of waiver, forward-looking statements. The federal securities laws dictate that an issuer can lose the ability to use the forward-looking statement safe harbor if, during the preceding three-year period, it has been made subject made the subject of a judicial or administrative proceeding involving violations of the anti-fraud provisions of the securities laws, or it has been convicted of certain felonies and misdemeanors unrelated to corporate to, to securities laws. Thus, enforcement matters unrelated to an issuer's corporate disclosure can render the issuer ineligible to use forward-looking statement safe harbor unless the issuer requests and is granted a waiver by the SEC. In responding to forward-looking statement waiver, waiver requests, the Commission staff generally evaluates a number of factors, in, such as whether disqualifying event involved disclosure for which the issuer was responsible, or that calls into question the ability of the issuer to produce reliable disclosure currently and in the future. The safe harbor provision for forward-looking statements was added as part of the Private, Private Securities Litigation Reform Act in 1995 and was enacted on a bipartisan basis over a veto from President Clinton. The purpose of this safe harbor, as set forth in the conference report, was that, quote, abusive litigation severely affects the willingness of corporate managers to disclose information to the marketplace, unquote, and, quote, fears that inaccurate proje projections will trigger the filing of securities class action lawsuit has muzzled corporate management, unquote. Therefore, the conference committee sought to enhance market efficiency by encouraging companies to disclose forward-looking information. The safe harbor was intended to provide certainty that forward-looking statements will not be actionable by private parties in litigation under certain circumstances. Academic research has long shown that stock prices respond to quantitative information conveyed in management earnings forecasts, as well as revisions of future earnings estimates. And recent academic studies have found that investors strongly respond to qualitative and non-earnings disclosures as well, resulting in greater changes in, greater changes in analyst forecast accuracy. Moreover, when managers are more uncertain about the future, they are less likely to use quantitative and earnings-related disclosures and, less li and more likely to use qualitative and non-earnings-related forward-looking statements. Thus, forward-looking statements provide critical information to investors to help them make informed decisions. So why then would we want to reject waivers and thus reduce incentives for companies to provide forward-looking statements? It has been asserted that it may be appropriate for the SEC to refuse to grant waivers if a company has too many enforcement actions, regardless of whether those violations relate to corporate disclosure. I disagree. A policy that discourages companies from providing forward-looking information harms investors, leads to unfair, disorderly, and inefficient markets, and discourages capital formation. It's a trifecta. It is antithetic to all three parts of our statutory mission. As some have observed, because a company's value is best judged by future prospects rather than historical performance, reduced use of forward-looking statements is especially concerning from the perspective of allocative efficiency. And there's even a stronger case for large, complex financial institutions to disclose forward-looking statements. A few weeks, well, weeks ago, I called for market-based prudential regulation, especially with respect to banks. 
Simply stated, exposing banks to the disclosure-oriented focus of market-based regulation would provide better protection to the financial system than relying on bank regulators who think they have the right to discard decisions made by individual participants in the capital markets. One of the important lessons from the financial crisis was that bank investments and exposures were not adequately disclosed, and the market had difficulty assessing the accurate value of financial institutions. This was the direct result of a flawed bank regulatory framework. Moreover, greater volatility with respect to banks and other financial institutions was specifically identified as an area of concern in the Dodd-Frank Act. If banks were not making forward-looking statements, the dearth of information for investors would be, would be even more severe. Let me make one last point about waivers. There are factors that are inappropriate when using, that, that, there are factors that are inappropriate to use when evaluating a particular waiver request. We should not be considering whether an issue, issuer is too big to fail. Indeed, with respect to the Commission staff's waiver policy for Wixies, the original approach was to consider a factor that said, quote, the issuer's significance to the market and its connectedness to other market participants, unquote, thereby enshrining the too big to fail concept as a factor in waiver consideration. Last year, when the staff sought to revise their policy statement on Wixie waivers, I successfully fought to remove the too big to fail factor as a consideration. The issue for forward-looking statement waivers is the same. Company size should be inconsequential. The right answer is whether a company can reliably produce disclosures. We should avoid all considerations that are not relevant to this analysis. Finally, I want to address the notion that some have said that the Commission should, quote, promote investor confidence, unquote. That's a nebulous concept and in any event promotes the wrong incentives. Does promoting investor confidence mean that an investor can stop doing due diligence thanks to the efforts of the government to keep the market safe? Does it mean that an investor need not educate himself or herself about the fundamentals of investing? Does it mean that an investor can avoid engaging in comparison shopping when it comes to fees and expenses by investment advisors, mutual funds, and broker-dealers? I think not. Rather, the Commission, as I said earlier, should promote a healthy dose of investor skepticism in order to better fulfill our investor protection mandate. Instead of promoting government dependence, the Commission should be promoting self-reliance and empowering investors to ask why and how. Why is an intermediary charging me this fee? How is the investment generating cash to return dividends or repayments? By asking why and how, we create a more informed marketplace that in turn promotes more accurate valuations, whether it be for a security, investment advice, or an investment-related service, creates more efficient allocation of capital, better economic growth, and higher standards of living for all. Thank you for your attention. Enjoy the rest of the conference, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Since you yeah. advocate uh, a market type of framework or, or in terms of market-based regulation right. of banks, why doesn't the SEC do more to really demand transparency, oh. risk transparency from the banks? 
Absolutely. And in fact, in the speech that I gave a couple weeks ago, I'm advocating just that. So uh, in addition to all the, the normal disclosure requirements that all public companies have to, have to, um, uh, have to follow, uh, we have in addition, we have what are called industry guides that are specific disclosures for specific industries. The industry guide for banks, it's actually bank holding companies, has not been updated since 1986. Now, banks have changed a little bit since 1986, right? And if you look at that industry guide, it's, um, it's completely useless. It's statistical information about loans and that sort of stuff, right? Banks do a heck of a lot of other things related to that. Um, I've, actually, I've, I've personally called for, let's open up industry guide number three. Um, and, um, and actually, Senator Brown, uh, the ranking member of, uh, on the banking, Senate Banking Committee, um, asked uh, my colleagues and me when we were going through the confirmation process about that as well, too. He has a particular interest in knowing about their, their, their investments and actions related to the commodities markets and that sort of thing. One of the lessons I learned when I was, at, I was working actually at the White House during the financial crisis, looking at the Bloomberg terminal, looking at call reports, looking at all kinds of regulatory reports, and, and realized that all that information was completely useless. We had no idea what the actual risks of the banks were. So what I'd like to do is think about industry guide three as more broadly in terms of what are the actual risks that, uh, that banks are exposed to. What I'd also like to do is get better information about some of the Federal Reserve's um, uh, regulatory policies that directly and have a, directly have a material impact on investors. So, for example, the Fed's um, stress testing and their CCAR reports, which directly affect banks, uh, uh, the, either a, the, the need to raise capital or their dividend policy, directly affects investors. And I think that should be material information. The living will process, which gives um, bondholders information about how a, a bank will be dealt with in bankruptcy, I think that's material information for banks as well, too. And then a third area that I think is important is um, for banks to be able to disclose what are the burdens of all the regulations that they are facing, uh, either in a quantitative way or a qualitative way, to let folks know what, who, what are the number of compliance officers they have to hire, what are they spending in terms of hiring outside lawyers and all of these other things, because at, I have to imagine that all of that information is material information to investors, and I'd like to open it up and require banks to disclose that, and then put it up for a public comment process, right? Talk about the ultimate in, 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 in crowdsourcing, our public comment process, right? We're required by statute to put all proposals out for public comment. Everyone in this room um, can submit a public comment on that, and uh, we have to actually take them all into account. Um, when we move forward with rulemaking. So that's something that actually hopefully we'll be moving forward with uh, in the near term. With all its monitoring of regulated entities, has mm -hmm. the SEC ever actually identified one single Ponzi scheme before it blew up? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, the... Uh, I just had a, um, a briefing. We, have a, we, we, knew have a, we now have a Ponzi scheme and pyramid scheme task force. Um, and um, the difficult part about Ponzi schemes now is they get very big very quickly for a couple of reasons. And, but, well, sort of two related reasons. They, they tend to be international in scope now, so they may begin somewhere else. So, for example, we had one um, that, that, was, um, that was started in uh, Brazil and uh, Portugal, 
And then it started to involve U.S. investors, um, immigrants from Portugal and Brazil and the United States. It also spread very quickly because of the use of social media. And so what, what, what the folks in the task force have found is that Ponzi schemes can get a lot bigger a lot more quickly than they have in the past. Um, the, the, the difficult part about Ponzi schemes is that nobody complains about them, right? If you think about it, the people who get out are happy. The people that are in them, even if they suspect it's a Ponzi scheme, the last thing they want to do is blow the whistle on it and you know, then all of a sudden they realize it's, you know, it's a Ponzi. They want to get out on that one, right? But one of the interesting things that um, our staff noted was that um, even though people don't complain about the Ponzi schemes, um, people tend to search for the, the, that term just in terms of getting background information. And so how can we think about using you know, search terms on our websites and stuff, not necessarily for you know, complaining about something, but just people are interested in something as a way to like, hey, here's a trend here that a lot of people are interested in this. Is this a high risk area that we need to be looking at? Commissioner, going back to uh, what they had talked about, about the JOBS Act mm -hmm. and equity crowdfunding yep. or crowdfunded investment right. and probably the need for a rewrite of the law because there right. was some poor, that provision, particular provision of the right. JOBS Act was poorly written and was, was uh, difficult even under the best interpretation for the SEC to implement. Right. Are there things outside of the JOBS Act, outside of the statute, that the SEC can do to facilitate equity crowdfunding, such as working with some of the states now that are legalizing right. it? Yeah. So, yeah, so thanks for that. Um, you, you know, it's, as was mentioning, the JOBS Act was a wonderful, uh, rare sort of instance of bipartisanship in Washington, D.C. The president wanted, uh, had pivoted to jobs, and the House Republicans had a bunch of uh, capital formation bills ready to go. And so they cobbled them together, called it the JOBS Act, sent it over to the Senate, and the only amendment that Harry Reid allowed on the floor to the JOBS Act was the crowdfunding amendment. Uh, the original bill in crowdfunding would have been less, a lot less prescriptive in terms of how the SEC was going to regulate, left, would have left a lot more details to us. The Senate version, the one that got adopted, was very, very prescriptive in terms of the regulatory portals that, that, that they have to be offered on and uh, restrictions in terms of the amount and restrictions in terms of um, the amount of the type of information, the amount of information uh, that's provided to investors. And so some have called for us to wait until maybe this, the, the Congress can pass um, a less prescriptive bill. Others have said, well, it's taken a long time for the SEC to move forward on this. Why don't we go ahead and go forward with the existing framework? And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Um, and John, you bring up a good point. There are things, even if it doesn't work, that we can do outside of the, the, the federal crowdfunding statute. Uh, and that is working with the states. So as you mentioned in Thea's talk, some of the states are coming up with their own intrastate crowdfunding uh, uh, rules and regulations. One of the things I'd like us to do is to use our exemptive authority to provide comfort to the states that the states could enter into, if they want to, memoranda of understanding to allow for regional crowdfunding. And so it would still be fall under the intrastate crowdfunding regulations, which the states can come up with their own, the natural laboratories that the states are. And some states want to have more prescriptive, and some states want to have less prescriptive. That's great. And then they can engage in regional crowdfundings to get sort of the scale at which you can, you can do these things. So for example, you know, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut might want to get together, DC, Maryland, Virginia. 
might want to get together and just let the states do that. What that would do is provide not only natural laboratories, but natural experiments for us at the federal level and Congress to look at what frameworks work better and which ones do not, and then perhaps revisit the statutory requirement at the federal level and make that better off. Um, and, and so that's, that's one thing we can do. Also, um, Regulation A offerings, Regulation A plus offerings, this, this is a sort of an in the weeds thing, but this is, um, uh, these are offerings that are not limited to accredited investors. Um, they do require more disclosure than crowdfunding, real small company ones, but they kind of fill a niche beyond sort of the mom and pop, um, you know, cupcake shops and those sorts of things that crowdfunding's done. But it, and, and folks have been um, very positive about, we've, we, that used to be limited to $5 million per offering. Now you could, it's limited to $50 million per offering. And for example, I just saw an article in The Hollywood Reporter saying that this would be a nice mechanism for uh, folks to uh, finance independent films in the future. Um, there's some additional requirements, makes it a little more costly than the typical crowdfunding, but it might fill that space in between uh, crowdfunding and the, and the larger offerings that are restricted to only accredited investors. Yeah. Uh, Commissioner, maybe I'm missing something, but it seems to me that the uh, whole point of the SEC and uh, the emphasis on disclosure is to reduce uh, the losses by investors due to some uh, underhanded or dishonest practice. Can you tell us, has the SEC reduced losses by investors over mm -hmm. the history of its existence? <laughs> Excellent question. The answer to that question, I can answer in three words, I don't know. Uh, just to be honest with you, right? Um, you know, we have, in, thankfully, you know, in the U.S., we have a disclosure-based regime as opposed to a merit-based regulation regime, where in other jurisdictions, the regulators decide whether or not certain offerings are too risky for you know, certain investors to get involved in or the companies. Are. All we do at the SEC is provide the disclosures for investors to make informed decisions. And some investors make mistakes, some investors make informed decisions, but that's much more powerful, much more empowering than a government bureaucrat saying, all right, this company can go public and this company can't, right? As long as the company discloses, if they have, you know, it's two guys, a dog and a garage, a dot-com address and, and, and no intellectual property rights, as long as they disclose that, all of that information, they can go public in the United States. Um, and so, you know, there's sort of a trade-off there, right? The alternative would be investors would be investing in things that would be potentially a lot less risky, but also on the upside, uh, losing that as well, too. Over here. Hi. Um, so um, I would like to uh, ask a question getting back to disclosure. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the proposed reexamination of Industry Guide 3, mm -hmm. it sounds great. And these new additions sound really material and really important. But in the context of, you know, a large public bank and looking at their 10K, they're already averaging about 800 to 1,000 pages. Yep. And yep. so I'd like to know, you know, your thoughts on how we can square, you know, this new additional material information against these huge, basically, you know, impenetrable disclosure documents we have at this point. No, absolutely. There is, 
you know, one of the downsides of a disclosure-based regime is we end up with a situation where there's information overload. And we see it not only in the public company space, we see it in, um, in, uh, in the mutual fund prospectuses, we see it in um, account opening statements. Um, I recently, I have my own personal financial advisor. I've had him for a long time. He helps, you know, make sure that I'm invested in stuff that I don't get in trouble and that sort of thing. He recently switched companies, and so I had to, we had to sign all these things and got all these new account opening statements. I mean, it's like this thick. And the font size is tiny, right? I have a PhD in finance. I'm an SEC commissioner. I'm not going to read these things, right? And then nobody's going to read these things, right? We recently have, you know, Dodd-Frank created a whole host of new regulations on credit rating agencies, right? Because, you know, more, more, more is better. It doesn't matter that it's, you know, it, it, all this burdensome and stuff. I had some, a credit rating agency come in and give me a disclosure document that they had to do for one structured uh, note offering that was 800 pages. And they wrapped it in a purple bow just for effect on this sort of thing. So I completely agree with you, right? And so there's a lot of disclosure that's created by Dodd, it's created by statute that we can't get rid of, or unless we try to do that sort of, you know, try to get the, get the law changed. Some of it is defensive type of, of one, as they see other companies disclosing it, so they disclose it, becomes boilerplate language, all that sort of thing. I mean, the one thing we could try to do is go back and try to, you know, lessen some of this disclosure, right, and add some in other places as well, too. Anytime we talk to different investors about, well, what about this piece of information? And somebody raises their hand and says, no, that, I, I, I like that information, right? The problem is the average investor, the, the important stuff gets lost, right? What we were able to do in the mutual fund prospectus um, space was not decrease the size of the prospectus, but allow for mutual, uh, mutual fund companies to do a um, summary prospectus. So in, in addition to it doesn't decrease the regulatory burdens, but in addition to the regular prospectus, you can do a summary prospectus, and it's like three, four, five pages long of just the important information. At least it gives better information to investors so they don't have to wade through all the extra stuff that's there, right? I'd love to live in a world where we can pair all that stuff back, but it's difficult to try to do. If the best we can do is get summary information out there for folks, I think that would be, you know, that would be a win. Mm -hmm. I, excuse me, right now the SEC, the CFTC, and the prudential regulators are working on rules for uncleared swap contracts and margin posting. Mm -hmm. Given the centrality of the securitization industry in the financial crisis, and particularly subprime mortgage securitizations, should securitization issuers post margin against uncleared swap contracts, particularly uncleared swap contracts with flip clauses? That is a very difficult question that I'll have to think about. Honestly, it's, it's one I have to, it, it, it's a real difficult one. I, just have to, I, I, I don't have an answer for you right now, but I'll certainly get back to you on that. Yeah. Do you want to do one more? Something less technical, please. Uh, I'm an individual investor, and uh, several of my friends got wiped out in the uh, mini crash that we had in 08 online. And it seems like a lot of it had to do with naked short sales yeah. and failure to deliver. And I'd like to know what the SEC is currently doing uh, to uh, dis uh, discourage people from doing that. Sure. So the SEC, before I got to the commission, did a number of, uh, not a number, but a couple of different rules. Um, that decreased the number of fails to deliver dramatically. 
what it did was it put the onus on the brokers to, oh, on behalf of their customers to make sure that um, they, they didn't fail to deliver. So in other words, if, if, if a particular customer failed to deliver the securities, then the punishment went towards the broker, and so the brokers are now self-policing, that sort of stuff, and those have gone down uh, dramatically. Um, in addition to those regulations, the commission also um, was directed by Dodd-Frank to engage in a study, uh, actually a couple different studies, and I'm trying to remember looking at my counsel for my counsel, Mark, here. I've, neither one has come out publicly yet, is that right? So there's a couple different studies here looking at. One is um, looking at the naked short selling to begin with, and the, other, and the second study would be looking at the potential for, um, for uh, firms when they mark a trade uh, as a short, to mark a trade as either a short sale or not. And so those studies should be coming out uh, fairly quickly. Now, it's been five years since Dodd-Frank. Why don't we have it out? Uh, Dodd-Frank only told the SEC to go forth and promulgate like a hundred new rules and do like I forget how many umpteen different studies that we had to do. So, um, you know, it's amazing in 2,319 pages all Dodd-Frank did was basically tell the regulators to, to do a bunch of, bunch of things. So those things are forthcoming. Uh, folks that have, have looked at the, at the closeout rules have, have said that they're fairly effective, but we're always looking at trying to, uh, to, 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 to tweak those. Is that it? All right, good, thanks. Uh, thank you, Commissioner Pieperbar. It's nice to know that there's a, at least one voice of reason at the SEC. Um, you know, one of the great things about organizing an event is you get to invite all your friends. So uh, I hope you've enjoyed listening to the people I spend every day pretty much talking to. So a little window into my world. Uh, we have a very special treat to wrap up. Uh, when we were putting together the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives and trying to get it off the ground, we knew we needed a world-class monetary theorist and historian. Uh, fortunately, the Cato Institute had a long-running relationship with George Selgin. Uh, after a little bit of coaxing, we, got to hit, we, we, we talked him into giving up a tenured faculty position at the University of Georgia to join Cato. Uh, let, me, let me note, instrumental in getting George to make that change uh, was our recently retired President John Allison. Uh, George would not be at the center were it not for John, uh, and in fact, the center would not be a reality were it not for John. Uh, so I really do appreciate um, all the work he's done. Fortunately for us, even with his retirement as president, he will stay as our chairman of our advisory committee, so he's not getting out so easily. We will still keep him around. Uh, with that, let me uh, turn the podium over to George to offer a little wrap-up. Thank you, Mark, for that fulsome praise, and thanks to uh, our distinguished guests and to my fellow speakers today for allowing me to conclude today's proceedings by telling you a little bit about the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. I'm afraid that that phrase doesn't exactly roll gracefully off of one's tongue, not mine anyway. Stumble is more like it. And yet, uh, the words are all there for good reason. We are Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives because we believe that these alternatives depend on each other for their success. I don't think you can have a financial policy, financial regulatory policy that's sound, that is, in the sense of being capable of succeeding 
in preventing financial disruptions uh, unless you have a sound monetary system because a sound, an unsound monetary system all by itself is capable of blowing up the most sound financial industry. On the other hand, there can be no such thing as a sound monetary policy or monetary regime that can withstand a flawed financial regulatory system. You can be sure that if you were to implement a rule-bound monetary regime tomorrow, whether it was a gold standard or a GNP targeting rule or anything else that eliminated the arbitrary discretionary manipulation of money by monetary authorities, that that system would last only so long as it took for another financial crisis to take place when you would find authorities from the government rushing to dismantle the rule and to replace it with another discretionary monetary regime. Our center has the word alternatives in it, also for a good reason, the reason being that the existing arrangements are a big flop. Uh, as for financial regulations being a flop, if today's speakers haven't already convinced you of that, I don't see how I can possibly do so now. Regarding monetary policy, I would dare to go so far as to say that our monetary policy and framework today is, if anything, worse than it was in 1914 when the Federal Reserve first got going. I'd be willing to defend that claim to anyone who's interested in uh, in having me do so, though not now, of course. Today, uh, speaking of misapprehensions about how well our system is working, I read an infuriating article in the New York Times. Soon it will be redundant to use that adjective. <laughs> in which, among other things, uh, Federal Reserve officials, including both the current chairman and the vice chairman and the past chairman, uh, Ben Bernanke, were uh, quoted as saying with their usual trademark smugness, what a wonderful job the Fed had done getting, out us, getting us out of the last crisis and recession. Uh, they cited all the econometric studies that showed that quantitative easing was successful. I've reviewed the, the econometric, econometric literature on that subject and I can tell you it's anything but definitive in its conclusions. They do show that yields changed. Well, you know, even I can make yields uh, change by lowering interest rates, but it doesn't follow that, uh, 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 that that makes for a recovery of real economic activity, activity as opposed to the mere goosing of asset prices, of which we've seen plenty. But they also said something even more annoying, several of them. They said, well, Anyone can just use the eye test. Get ready. This is becoming another one of these. I'm sorry, I couldn't. I, I, I was going to stop myself from saying fedophile, but it's one of these fedophile expressions. A fedophile is a lover of the Fed. I don't wish to be misunderstood. <clears throat> uh, that, that, that 
the idea is that you can just see with your own eyes, you don't need any fancy statistics, that the Fed has done a wonderful job. Well, all I can say is there must be a lot of rose-colored eyeballs at the Federal Reserve System because, uh, to my way of seeing, and I hope to yours, the Fed's success at getting us out of this recent crisis is extremely doubtful. It's been seven years and we're far from being out of the woods. Do you know that even in the Great Depression, most nations were out of the depths of that sooner than is the case for us today in this recent crisis. And for what it's worth, we would have been out of the Great Depression by 1936 in all likelihood if it hadn't been for many of FDR's botched New Deal policies that had the effect of preventing more rapid recovery from that crisis. I've I know some of you have heard me say this before, but whenever somebody says what a great job quantitative easing has done getting us out of the recession, I think about an old episode of the Beverly Hillbillies that I'm old enough to have watched, where throughout the episode, uh, they're trying to get Granny's recipe for curing the common cold so they can make a mint with it. And they finally get it out of her at the end, only to have her uh, upon completing the list of ingredients, say, you just take a swig of it, and in a week to 10 days, you're as good as new. <laughs> the difference between Granny's elixir and the Federal Reserve's quantitative easing policy is that, so far as that episode, TV episode revealed, nobody who took Granny's elixir actually got sicker than they would have been. So uh, our policies, our monetary policy framework uh, as well as our regular financial regulatory framework, are certainly broken. Now, there's one word that's not exactly in our center's title or name. That's the word freedom. But then again, it is, sort of, because we're not the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. We're the Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, which means that we're bound to take market-oriented alternatives to financial and monetary stabilization particularly seriously. Well, I am anyway bound to do this because I've spent most of my career as an academic studying monetary arrangements that were market-based and studying financial systems that were market-based instead of based on government controls. And that's study has convinced me absolutely that market forces, if they are allowed to do so, are much better capable of delivering financial and monetary stability than any amount of government regulations can. So at our center, instead of pleading for more of the same heavy-handed government intervention that brought about the last crisis and brought about many others before it, and is if we do nothing about it, about to bring about some more crises in the future, we are determined to try to push the pendulum in the other direction, away from regulatory solutions and towards market-based solutions for monetary and financial stabilization and uh, uh, for monetary and financial soundness. 
That kind of approach worked in the past. This is not a hypothetical uh, or radical idea in the sense that we're chartering, we're, we're stem, uh, steaming out into uncharted waters. There have been some financial and monetary systems of the past where, for various often peculiar reasons, governments didn't get their hands into the system and muck systems and muck them up the way most governments have done since. Examples include the Scottish banking system of the earlier 19th and late 18th century, where there was essentially no government regulation of any importance at all. Competing banks have issued supplied currency. There was no central bank. There was nothing like government deposit insurance. There was, as Kevin Dowd mentioned briefly in his talk, extended liabilities for some, but not all, of the Scottish banks. The biggest regulatory control in Scottish banking was something tried and true. It's called letting bad banks fail. There was, there was one spectacular failure in the Scottish system early on, in 1772. The Air Bank, that's its nickname, never mind the longer name. By the way, some, there's a new book coming out on this uh, from Harvard University Press, where the author in an earlier version of the book said Air Bank, he thought it might have been a nickname that the bank got when it collapsed. You know, Air, A-I-R, in fact, it's the name of the county seat. But in any event, the Air Bank was pretty much made of air by the time it failed, and it failed as the largest Scottish bank's bank at the time, proportionately far larger than the biggest failures in the recent crisis here in the U.S. So if there ever was a bank that was too big to fail, the Air Bank was it. But there was no central bank to rescue it, or any other government authority for that matter, because the, the, the British Parliament could care less what happened to Scotland. No. <laughs> Some things, some things never change. <laughs> and so uh, the Air Bank failed. Now, the, the, this was a disaster at the time. Quite a few other Scottish banks, smaller ones, went down in flames with the Air Bank, which, by the way, got as big as it did by lending without any uh, 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 prudential controls, without even heeding the fact that it was hemorrhaging reserves to other banks. It just tried to borrow in London and the wholesale market, we would say today, to cover its losses. Didn't work then any more than it worked recently. Anyway, it crashed. Some other banks went down with it. And the result of this naive, uh, almost primitive arrangement in which a too-big-to-fail bank was allowed to fail was 150 years of unprecedented financial and monetary stability for the Scottish people, not to mention extremely rapid economic growth. It was the soundest monetary system the world has ever known. But it wasn't the only good system, and it wasn't the only good system based on freedom. The Canadian system, our northern neighbor, there was a system that also for roughly depending on how you counted, anything from 150 to 200 years, and even in the recent cycle, showed its metal. And that metal was based 
for the most part, on relative freedom. Before 1935, Canada didn't even have a central bank, and yet for 150 years before it, it was crisis-free. It had none of the crises to which the U.S. economy was routinely subjected during the period up to 1935. In the Great Depression, it had zero bank failures, not one. Canada didn't have deposit insurance until 1967, when it was, by the way, only the second country after us to implement such a scheme. Now, some of you may be thinking, ah, well, why did they implement deposit insurance after all? Something must have been wrong. Why did they implement the central bank in 1935 if the system was as all fired great as Selgin is trying to make us believe? I can tell you, you will find no good reasons why Canada took those two steps. They were not taken in reaction to any perceivable infirmities in the pre-existing arrangements. More than anything else, Canada's decision to adopt central banking in 1935 was a reaction to just the idea that every country needed to have a central bank, which was by that time had really taken off. It was an intellectual step rather than a pragmatic step. And it was a bit of a sop to inflationists who were uh, making noises in the Canadian West, wanting more money creation, wanting the government to issue more paper money, rather like our greenbackers. In the case of the deposit insurance, same thing. Looming behind the destruction of good systems like Canada's is the powerful influence of two countries that have had the worst financial, regulatory, and monetary arrangements in some respects in the world. The United States, first and foremost, and England. The U.S. really has been a bad, evolutionary biologist would say, a bad meme, right? We have a very bad history of flawed monetary regulation, and yet the United States has had more influence in shaping other countries' monetary and financial systems than any other countries. And our own economists, for the most part, including Fed economists, Fed officials, don't understand that our system has always been deeply flawed. They, too, treat it as if it's always been the best possible system. You wouldn't know, listening to most of these, you wouldn't, uh, economists, you wouldn't know that the reason we had financial crises before the Fed was because we didn't have branch banking, because our laws controlling currency issue, currency was issued before the Fed by national banks, our laws controlling their ability to issue currency made them back all their currency with government debt, which was becoming scarcer and scarcer after the Civil War as we approached the, 19, the uh, turn of the 20th century, that created severe currency shortages. Economic historians, monetary historians, know all this. They can t all tell you how our system was prone to crises because it was overregulated, not because it wasn't regulated enough, and certainly not because it didn't have a central bank. But the mythology has developed that our system needed a central bank in 1914 because it was, under laissez-faire, unstable. Not true. Similarly, the conventional wisdom about the 1930s is that our banking system suffered thousands of failures because 
We, the Federal Reserve, hadn't been an effective lender of last resort yet. That's true. But, uh, and also because there was no deposit insurance. In fact, there was no need for deposit insurance, or wouldn't have been any, or for an alert lender of last resort if we had had a structurally sound banking system like Canada's. We had thousands of bank failures because we had thousands of weak, undercapitalized, and underdiversified banks. Well, you see how this regulatory dynamic works. Every time there's a crisis, a misunderstanding of the regulatory roots of the crisis leads to another batch of regulatory interventions which does not work well and inevitably results in another crisis later on and another reaction from government mainly consisting of further layers of regulatory uh, uh, solutions. And we keep going in this same direction and the results will, I assure you, continue to be the same. By the way, uh, it's amazing to me to read official talk about the need for government deposit insurance. If you confront a, a standard Fed official or economist and ask them why we need deposit insurance, they'll tell you about bank runs. And if you ask them, well, what sort of runs are you referring to? More often than not, they'll say, you know, like in It's a Wonderful Life, a movie. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Uh, incidentally, the bank that was run upon in It's a Wonderful Life was, a, was a, a building and loan society. It wouldn't have been eligible for Federal Reserve support or FDIC insurance, and it was mismanaged by some guy who was too busy, I don't know what he was doing, talking to angels or something, Instead of managing his portfolio responsibly, of course it should have failed. But the whole story of bank runs is really quite ridiculous. Uh, the truth of the matter is that most of the time when there are runs on banks, the runs are on uh, banks that are already in trouble. Amazingly, people seem to know which banks they should run on. When Northern Rock was run upon in England, and it was no coincidence, that it was. It wasn't just picked out randomly from the herd. It was a bad bank, and people were acting in a way that was quite desirable, really. Uh, of course, some of them might not have gotten their money, but the bank would have been closed, and from the social point of view, that's what you want. Runs are great. They really actually are. <laughs> Nobody cites the run in Mary Poppins. I don't know why. I, I would think that that's just as scientifically valid as uh, the one in Kepper's movie. Anyway, um, so, <clears throat> so anyway, uh, we are uh, very much determined to try to swing the pendulum back towards market-oriented solutions. I've got to tell you, I've got to be honest here, this is not going to be a quick victory, okay? It's bad out there. And the only way we're going to make any progress towards victory is by changing people's understanding. We've got to be chipping away at the intellectual foundations of the present regulatory, financial regulatory, and monetary framework. Unless we undermine that framework that way at its rotten intellectual roots, we will have no hope of eventually toppling it. So I'm asking you for your support, of course,
but I also am asking you for your patience as we take on this monstrous Goliath that confronts us in the hopes that we can finally achieve real monetary and financial stability. Thank you very much. I think, I think that I have, we have a little bit of time, right, for two questions. Okay. There's one down here. Uh, Aram Fuchs from Fertile Mind Capital. I was wondering if you could just comment. You mentioned that the, the intellectual roots are rotten. Um, but a couple of pieces of, piece of legislation, uh, specifically the Legal Tender Act, seems to be a manifestation of the sort of abstract intellectual roots. Are, are, are I'm there sorry, I, I'm the, the, the Legal you. Tender Act? I'm just curious, what, what are you aiming at in terms of practical uh, laws that, that are the manifestations of the intellectual roots that you say you're attacking? Oh, well, there are all sorts of them. The Legal Tender Acts, legal tender is one of these phrases, could, it can mean a million things. It can mean that the government specifies what you pay your taxes in. It can mean what the government uh, uh, designates as the unit in which fines are paid for uh, court cases. Or it can mean here's what you have to accept in settlement of your debt no matter what you thought you were going to get. The latter kind of legal tender law is entirely vicious. The other ones are at worst, otios, but that, that other, the kind I just mentioned is, is vicious. It is a way of propping up inferior monetary standards and swindling people in the process. Certainly, it's a, it's a notion that has done much more harm historically than good. But when I spoke of the rotten intellectual roots of our system, what I basically mean is this. The belief that a central bank is necessary to make a monetary system stable and reliable and particularly that a discretionary central bank is necessary. The history of monetary uh, institutions shows otherwise. Indeed, a careful scrutiny of that history and of theory show that central banks are fundamentally destabilizing institutions. Let me give you just a quick example of what I mean by intellectual rotten roots. Walter Badgett, the second and most well-known editor of The Economist magazine is also famous for having written a book called Lombard Street, which is considered the Bible of the classical notion of last resort lending. Most apologists for central banks, pedophiles among them, will say, now Badgett showed how you need a lender of last resort, that is, why we need central banks. Every country has to have one. If you actually read Lombard Street, he says, more or less, what that England is stuck with, because it's stuck with a monopoly bank in London with all these privileges, and that bank tends to destabilize the system if it just looks after its own profits, what we need, since we can't get rid of the Bank of England, is to have it act as a lender of last resort. He doesn't use that expression, by the way, but have it act as a lender of last resort by lending freely at high rates during financial crises. But Badgett explicitly says it would have been better if England had never made the mistake of concentrating privileges in that bank. And so he was far from recommending a central bank for any other country. That's, you can read it. I'm not exaggerating. Similarly with the conventional wisdom about bank runs and the need for all sorts of financial regulation. 
It's just based on myth. A lot of it today is inspired by a paper published in 1983 by a couple of financial economists named Diamond and Dibbig, who concocted a model that seemed to be a model designed to do two things. First, have an institution that you could call a bank and give it something to do that otherwise wouldn't be done in the economy. And second, have bank runs happen, a la It's a Wonderful Life, because the assumption is that a good model should reproduce what happens in that film or in Mary Poppins or whatever, never mind what real runs are like. In this model, just to give you some clue, there's no bank capital, so the slightest shock causes the bank to become insolvent. There's only one bank, so no question of people just taking their money somewhere else and having a banking system that survives. Uh, the contracts aren't true deposit contracts. You can't, have any, uh, you can't have any kind of a suspension agreement to thwart panic-based runs, and so on. The predictions of the model are wrong. The assumptions are unrealistic, not in an innocuous way, but in a, an absolutely crucial way to generate the results. And believe it or not, this thing has been cited something like 4,000 times. And if you ask a financial regulator or advocate of deposit insurance what the model, what, why deposit insurance is necessary, they'll point to this model, not to any really valid theory. Oh, yeah, deposit insurance in the model works because implicitly, this has been shown, it's assumed that the government has access to information that the model assumes no one else can have in order to make the runs happen. Right? Well, I could go on. The whole, I'll say it again though as an assertion, please, uh, I, I, I've defended this, I'll defend it any time. The whole, the intellectual roots of our present interventionist arrangements for regulating banks and for regulating money are rotten. If you know your stuff, you will know that it's all wrong. But we have to make the case that it's wrong to people who don't know it yet, and then we can have some change. Do we have time for one more? You can make it very quick. A very quick one, a quickie. Quick. Over here, do we? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to preempt anybody. Oh. Very short. Oh, very short. I just wanted to say I'm a former regulator. I spent nine years uh, analyzing structured securities and warning about triple A's, and a lot of people didn't want to hear about it. Uh, one thing that I've learned is that perhaps the ultimate moral hazard, and there are all kinds of moral hazards, is the complacency and the pig-headedness of self-perpetuating bureaucracies that lack genuine, substantive, analytical accountability where these bureau government bureaucrats in so-called regulatory bodies spend 90% of their time protecting their jobs and maybe 10% of their time engaged in substantive analytical efforts. And they avoid accountability at all costs because nothing is more dangerous for a bureaucrat than accountability. And that is one of the greatest weaknesses in our regulatory system, and I can speak to that from my own personal experience and that of many other regulators I've known who are very good people and who are terribly frustrated with that kind of degenerate logic. That's it. My short answer to that is amen and hallelujah. <laughs> well, I think you can see why we brought George on board. Um, I really uh, 
delighted everyone came out today. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, and I hope to see all of you at future Cato events. Thank you.